0: and welcome to the Three Worlds Podcast Series 2, Episode 5. Well, we've been talking about spirits and we've been talking about workshops and we've been talking about what shamanism is and I guess we've probably covered what animism is to some degree too in the last four episodes. So this episode, I'd like to go into a little bit more detail, I think. I never really plan podcasts, I've got to say that. I just sort of sit here in front of the microphone and open my mouth and turn it on and waffle and (laughs) hope that something fairly decent is going to come out. I'm really crap at planning things. Some people would probably be meticulous. Some people would probably have scripts. Yeah, so perhaps it would be really good to just address some of the little areas of shamanism And then maybe go into some more depth and let's see where that leads me. Hopefully not up a blind alley. Soul retrieval is one of the big things in shamanism and it's taught very much in a core shamanic way. So um, that is quite familiar to people in the West, I think. Uh, Sandra Ingerman did a book many years ago called Soul Retrieval, which is sort of the classic book on the subject. And Caitlin Matthews also did a book, that is very good and focuses on it. And since those two, there's been lots and lots of other books too by other people. So I'm going to talk a little bit about soul retrieval and I'm going to talk about sort of shamanic healing and working with the spirits in an active way. So let's do a quick recap of what soul retrieval is from a core shamanic point of view because the way that core shamanism teaches soul retrieval is pretty different to the way that soul retrieval happens in the wild with feral shamanism so in the core shamanic tradition it's said that people lose aspects of their soul or more perhaps lose aspects of their soul's core energy when they have experiences that the person finds difficult. So that could be a physical accident, it could be childhood trauma, it could be shock, it could be all sorts of things. And that makes the energy of the person's soul, their vitality, go out through their boots. So in that scenario, as taught in Western core shamanism, The shamanic practitioner will do a journey to their spirit helpers, hopefully good, well-trusted spirit helpers. And they will go out with their spirit helpers in search of the missing fragmented soul part, the soul energy that is generally out there somewhere lurking, not particularly wishing to be found very often. And then they will, with the help of their spirit helpers, identify it and they will capture it, coax it, rescue it if it's being held by another spirit, ransom for it, fight for it again if it's being held by another spirit and bring it back to the physical world perhaps by carrying it in their drum or uh, in their rattle or whatever it is. There's different ways of bringing it back. And then they will take it to the poor, sick, miserable person, as Jonathan Horvitz describes the client, and they will blow it into that person or put it into them in some other way, making sure, absolutely sure, that it really is the missing soul part and not an entity trying to pretend to be that missing soul part so that you have then brought that energy bundle, that soul part, back to the person where it originated from. That's it at its very basic, simplistic core level. It's a little bit more complicated than that because the reason for the soul loss may still be present and The soul may be brought back and say, bugger this for a game of soldiers, I'm out of here, and flip straight back out. So the client may have to do personal work of some sort, or they may have to have an energy retrieval, which is a way of bringing power to the client, so that there is enough power in the client for that soul part to stick. It's like it may need glue. Um, so that's one of the things. And also, I think it's really good to have an integration process. So generally, if I do a soul retrieval, I will give the client a month or so of a daily ceremony, which helps ground and bring in and fix that soul part. I will always talk to my spirits about that and I will ask them to give a ceremony and it may just simply be the client has to go a walk each day and find a stone and bring it and make a sort of cairn of stones on their table or it could be anything. The spirits are incredibly creative. I wouldn't begin to second guess what they might say but there is some form of integration process that takes a while so that the client is reminded that they have a soul part that's come back to them and they have to look at it every day and that helps them kind of fix it and helps the soul part integrate a bit. If the soul part is of a particular age, like maybe somebody got frightened by a motorbike when they were 11 and uh, had a soul bit that fled at that point, then the the shamanic practitioner may find that that part is an 11-year-old and they may see it as an 11-year-old. Sometimes the practitioner will actually be able to tell the client how old the soul part looks and that will actually trigger a memory and very often memories will come back anyway for the client. So it's uh, it can be a kind of time of, of, of getting t- together with, making friends with, welcoming home Uh, a part of them that is from a long time ago and that too has got its difficulties and often brings up all sorts of emotions and like I say memories and things like that can be very big work but sometimes soul retrieval can be a lot more complicated so okay this is a story of uh, somebody that I did work for I was working with a Mongolian shaman friend of mine. The Two of us were working on this particular person together, and it was distance work, but we were both taking a very active part in it. So this person was, the the client, the poor, sick, miserable person, was very ill. Uh, They had uh, a life-threatening cancer situation, so they were extremely ill. So... In a situation like that, the client is going to have lost massive amounts of soul. And in effect, really just doing a soul retrieval at that level is not necessarily going to help that much. But it might put them in a better frame. And if they're in a better frame, that will enable them to fight off any disease spirits that are around for them. So it's always a good thing to look at. Oh, just an aside here. If a client comes to you and they say, I need a soul retrieval, do not believe them. Always, always, always check it with your spirits. Never let a client tell you what they need. Always go talk to your spirits, go and have what I call a tutorial. Take the case notes, sit around the table with your spirits and discuss the case and ask the spirits what the client needs. It's so common nowadays that people will kind of phone you up or email you or something and they will say, I need a soul retrieval. I need X, Y, Z. And mostly they're not shamanic practitioners. They may have come across it on a website or read a book or been told by their best friend's pet poodle. And they will think that they know what they want but only the spirits know what they want so never agree to do anything unless you've checked it out with your spirits first and also some clients are not for you you can't help everybody there has to be a sort of match between you and the client so don't take on a client until you have talked to your spirits Always, always, good, basic practice, I never agree ever to do a healing for somebody. I always will say I need to talk to my spirits first, so okay, back to the story. so there's this client, they're really ill, I mean they are basically dying, and um my shaman friend and myself are working with them, doing a lot of work, huge amounts of ceremonies, both here where I live and in Mongolia, where my shaman friend lives. And we're doing all sorts of fairly heavyweight things, including calling in Buddhist monks to do ceremonies and lots of other stuff. We both determine the cause of the cancer and the cause of the cancer was a sort of karmic issue. It was uh, kind of a, a bad thing that happened in the family of this person uh from a long time ago and it involved the murder of a little girl and that had kind of caused a ripple in the karma of the family and um although the the client was not in any way responsible there was a sort of family curse for want of a better way of putting it not a curse put on by a magician or anything like that but a curse that was caused by improper actions of people in the family line in the past. So this was a fairly heavyweight situation. We did basic healing, working with the actual client, but we needed to sort out the curse. And that was a little bit more than a regular soul retrieval. So we both of us did uh recces, reconnoiter missions as it were calling to our spirits, to our on gods, which is the Mongolian word for the spirits, and getting information and going and seeing what the actual situation was. Both of us came up with exactly the same thing, that this this little girl, I guess she would have probably been about nine or ten, had been murdered in quite an unpleasant way um, and had been traumatised because of that. Her spirit was absolutely traumatised as it would be because of the horrible things that had happened to her. And so we had to, in effect, work with the soul of the little girl to neutralise the curse that was going on in this particular family line. So that was a whole different way of working with soul retrieval. This is actually getting into another area of shamanism, which is called psychopomp work. Uh, psychopomp work is working with the spirits of the dead and helping them cross over and that is a, a whole other area and there's lots of different ways of doing it but in this case it kind of ties in with the soul retrieval because it felt to us that we had to retrieve and rescue the soul of this girl before she could actually move on so my friend, my shaman friend, did the first bits of work on this and kind of sussed out what was happening. And And, and they weren't really very comfortable about doing it because it, it was something that they didn't feel that they kind of could. They found it upsetting, basically. I mean, shamans are human, too. And uh, they found it a bit difficult to do because of the nature of this girl's death. And I was much happier to do that. I'm, I don't fall off my chair very easily. And I'm not saying that the shaman fell off their chair because they didn't. They're big and tough and strong and know more about this sort of stuff than I do. But I was more suited than they were for this particular work. So I had to go and uh, find the parts of this little girl, the soul parts of this little girl that had actually been... well. I'm going to have to be fairly graphic here in a way. She had been dismembered after she had died. She had been cut up and parts of her had been buried all over the place. And so I had to go and find all of the separate parts of her soul. All of the bits from her body have an individual soul. So if somebody, is, say, has got a broken arm, you can actually do a soul retrieval for that person's broken arm because this little girl was in several pieces i had to gather all of the soul parts together and reassemble them in effect and then to deal with the little girl i actually had to put all of those little soul parts into a shaman's mirror uh now that's a whole other area of talking so we'll i'll talk about shaman's mirrors in a in a little while But I had to put them into a bronze shaman's mirror, which was then, as my spirits said it, to be put into the wind and the rain so that she could dissolve back into nature. And so I collected all those soul parts, actually put them into the mirror in a ritual way. And then the mirror was suspended in my garden on an earth altar outside, which I have where I make offerings. And in fact, is still there. So uh that was a a much more complicated soul retrieval oh and just to let you know we did the work we completed the work for the person who had the cancer and at that stage it didn't look terribly healthy i've got to say that and the client went into hospital and it really didn't look like they were going to come out again and and i'll be honest i didn't think that we had managed to catch it in time hadn't managed to do enough um And then about six months later, the client contacted me because they had come out of hospital and they had been completely cleared of cancer. They were completely well. Now, I make absolutely no claims on that. But I do say the spirits do the most remarkable things. But it's the spirits that do the work. The shaman doesn't. The shaman is just the intermediary. The spirits do the work. But that's that's one particular story. There's a lot more about that story. I'm actually writing a book at the moment. I'm writing a book that is um, kind of a bit autobiographical and it's looking at different aspects of my life and uh, some of the kind of shamanic adventures that I've had coupled with lots of different teachings about different things. I'm only about a fifth of the way into writing it at the moment, so it's going to be a while before it's published, but it's coming along, and that story will be in there in a lot more depth than I can go into here, and there's a lot more twists and turns in it too, uh, and there'll be other stories. But that's that story, I thought, would be a fairly good one to talk about soul retrieval in a slightly different way and also to talk about the concept of psychopomp, because psychopomp work is a really major part of shamanism too. So shamanic healing takes a multitude of forms, and each case is different. And I've long ago given up trying to second-guess what the spirits will show me or what the spirits will ask me to do, because it's just, it's just an incredibly different thing every time. For it to be shamanic healing, it has to involve shamanism. It has to actually involve trance work. It has to involve going and dealing with the spirits in a trance, in the spirit world. It's perfectly normal for shamans to do all sorts of other healing and it gets called shamanic healing because it's a shaman doing it. But technically it isn't. If we go back to the first podcast of this series, shamans also do animistic work too. So lots of what is called shamanic healing is technically animistic healing. But also, like I said in the first podcast of this series, it doesn't actually matter. It really doesn't matter. At the end of the day, if you've helped somebody with the things that you've done for them, then it's healing and it really doesn't matter that much at all, whether it's shamanic or animistic. That's just a technical argument. So, okay, so you're doing a shamanic healing for somebody. Um, Let's think of a kind of case study, a hypothetical case study. So, okay, somebody comes to you and they say that they are constantly unlucky. They are constantly unlucky. They've led a miserable life and they're asking you to do something for them. Now, the spirits are going to work with you depending on your own kind of abilities. So... The first thing you do is you go and talk to the spirits and you say, this person is miserable and they're asking for help. What can we do for them? And the spirits will work with you, like I say, depending on what you're like and what you are capable of doing. They may say, give the person a blessing. They may say, give the person a ceremony of some sort that, will bring luck to them they may say this person needs a soul retrieval this person needs a power retrieval this person needs to be much more in touch with the spirits this person needs a holiday all sorts of things the spirits may say and work with you on that level but they also may say something like a little bit like I was saying about that little girl this person has got a problem in their family line and you need to go and deal with it So, okay, you roll up your sleeves, you go and deal with it. How do you deal with it? Well, of course, that depends on what the situation is. But let's say that you are going to deal with it and you meet something unpleasant. Maybe, you know, you meet some form of spirit that is an attachment to the family or an attachment to this person's line. That is very unpleasant. What are you going to do? Well of course the first thing that you're going to do is you're going to talk to your spirits you're going to ask your spirits what is going to happen here what do i need to do should i be protected in any way etc cetera, etc cetera. you have to bother your spirits you have to talk to them and be proactive like i said a while back in another podcast this is not like watching a movie this is like going shopping you've got to go and be proactive At the end of the day, that is the key to all shamanic work. Ask your spirits. No spirits, no shaman. You can't do this by yourself. You are, in effect, the servant of the spirits. You carry out things that they tell you to do, but they are in charge, and you need to refer back to them all the time and ask them and ask them and ask them. So a lot of shamanic training really is about Knowing how to connect with the spirits, learning to trust them, learning to be able to hear them in a clear, unpolluted, uncontaminated way so that your own thoughts and your own impressions and your own ideas and your own will don't get in the way. Once you can do that and you learn to let go and you learn to trust what's going on and what they tell you to do, then you'll start to fly. So okay, uh situation another one that I had. Um I won't go into the whole story about it, but it involved working with a guy from Malaya, or Malaysia. I never know quite how to say that. Country in Southeast Asia. And um, he came from a family of uh, shamans. I don't know what the the Malay word is for that, but but uh, he came from that family and I had to go and work with his ancestors and his ancestors were pretty pissed off and uh, he had upset them through various things and I had to go and sort out the damage, and uh, part of the situation was that he had to prepare a great big feast for them in the traditional manner and all of that, and, you know, we kind of got it sorted, and, and I sort of poured oil on the water a bit and got things a little bit smoother, but then I'd finished my work, and I had to come back, and my spirits said, cover your tracks. These ancestral shamans were potentially dangerous. They were very curious about me, and I had to come back to ordinary reality in such a way that they couldn't follow me. And I had to listen to my spirits about that. I do have different techniques that I can now call upon because my spirits have taught me them over the years. But if I hadn't been listening to my spirits and paying close attention to the fact that they actually wanted me to come back in that cloaked way then I might have just come back out of the trance in the normal way and those ancestral spirits would undoubtedly have followed me back and potentially have caused mischief. So, again, it's always about listening to the spirits, listening to one's own spirits, the spirit helpers, and following instructions and being aware. You can't do shamanic work you can't do animistic work, you can't do magical work if you're not aware. And if you think that you are the cat's whiskers and the bee's knees, and you go in there, all guns blazing, and think that you are, you know, some form of shamanic Rambo, that dates me, doesn't it? Yeah, anyway, um, you're going to trip up, you're going to come a cropper. Also, you're probably going to come a cropper if you go and meet something quite unpleasant, and you try and do love and light on it, and give it Kisses and rainbows and send it cute little fluffy cats. Because not everything out there likes cute little pussy cats. Well, actually, a lot of things out there actually eat cute little pussy cats. So you've got to be um, compassionate with a big stick, I think is a good way of putting it. I'll talk about compassion. As a Tibetan Buddhist, I'm not dualist. I don't believe that there is any such thing as good or evil. I do believe that there is compassion and non-compassion and I do accept that a lot of spirits that one meets and indeed a lot of people in the physical world are not very nice and do not have your best interests at heart but I absolutely reject the concept that they are evil. Now for me I try and show compassion to all beings, including the ones that would gobble me up. That doesn't mean that I'm a pushover. That doesn't mean I come up to some awful, horrible monster spirit and give it a big hug because it just needs love. I carry a big stick, but I'm also compassionate. My attitude to this, the teachings are that there is compassion and there is ignorance. They're the two opposites, not good and evil. But they're not really opposites, if you think about it, because it's a sliding scale between ignorance and knowledge, and knowledge gives you compassion. So if a spirit is suffering, it tries to make other beings suffer. The same with people. You often in psychotherapy will come across the concept of the abused becoming the abuser. Something is suffering, something is hurting, it kind of wants to make other things suffer. And that's the same with spirits. So the spirit of an illness is a suffering being. The spirit of a psychopath is a suffering being. You protect yourself against the psychopath. You protect yourself against the spirit of illness. But they're not intrinsically bad. They need their own healing too and you have to show them compassion. But you also have to protect yourself. So compassion is often tempered by carrying a big stick. One of the shamanic healings that I often do, um, well, I suppose technically it's an animistic healing. Anyway, it doesn't matter, uh, is is what's called liberation. And uh, in liberation, it's a Tibetan ceremony. You actually, in effect, kill the spirit of illness or the spirit that is possessing somebody. You liberate it in a compassionate way. You kill it so that it can then have a more fortunate rebirth and it is released from its karma. This is sort of what could be considered wrathful healing in Tibetan Buddhism you have beings that are wrathful they are kind of surrounded by halos of fire and they have lots of weapons in their many hands and maybe they're dancing on corpses and they have necklaces of severed heads they wouldn't kind of hurt a fly and they're actually compassionate beings but they carry a big stick and they do tough love I guess is another way of putting it A lot of the shamanic work that I do tends to be on that kind of wrathful side. That's just my personality. That's my predilection, if you like. It doesn't have to be done that way. Some people will work in a much more peaceful way, and that suits them. Everybody is different. Each person, each practitioner... We're all unique. You'll have your own way of working and the spirits will work with you because you're the shape that you are. So it's really important to develop yourself and to find out who you are and to keep talking to them spirits because talking to them spirits is what it's all about. So I think enough for this episode. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email nick at sacredhoop.org. If you would like to take out a subscription to Sacred Hoop magazine, you can get two years for £14. That's eight issues. That's about $17. And you can get that at sacredhoop.org forward slash offer.html. If you want to go and visit the Three Worlds website and see all the beautiful sacred objects and learn about them, then that is freeworlds.co.uk and that's the number three, not the word free. And if you would like to make a donation to PayPal because you've enjoyed listening to me rambling on in the way that I have, then please do so and I will be able to buy some coffee and then I'll have a choice between coffee and tea. And the email address to send a PayPal donation is donation at sacredhoop.com Org. next time come back and i will ramble on about something else and who knows where that will go all right i hope you've enjoyed it have a good time catch you next time bye bye